Before we open the Word of God this morning, we've got a couple of things we want to cover. First of all, first and foremost, where's he at? Daniel. Daniel Jardinsky. Would you stand and wave hello to Ed? What would be the proper military thing to do? We'll clap for you. How about that? That's the proper thing to do. We're, we've been praying for you, Daniel. We're proud of you. And I have one question to ask you. And you have to get the answer right. Okay. What was it like to have your first home-cooked meal from your mom? Oh my that is the correct answer. <laughs> That's great. That's great. It's great to have you home. And you look, you look superb. So thank you so much. Um, I want to remind you, if you are still in town on Tuesday for Christmas Eve, to come on out at 6 p.m. for the candlelight service. If you have never been to one of the Christ Fellowship Christmas Eve services, you need to know that uh, Jason Scheib and the worship team just just put together a wonderful service uh, that will be unforgettable. And so I want to encourage you to come out to that. One more thing before we open up the Word of God. Would you open your bulletins just for a moment? And this is something that I just want to make reference uh, to uh, for your information. Is if you pull out the the read it selection for the month of December, uh, from time to time I will make a, a personal comment on the read it selection. I want to highlight this month's selection, which is by James K. A. Smith, and the title of the book is "On the Road with Saint Augustine." And the subtitle is A Real World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. The reason I want to make special reference to this is because of all the books that I read in 2019. Um, some of you know, if you follow my blog, you know that I do a top 10 list every December. About the middle of December, I, I publish my top 10 list. This was the number one book that I read in 2019, which you say, well, big deal. That's, that's, that's your number one book. But as I got to looking on the internet, I'm not the only one. So either I have good taste or they have good taste, but there are other, uh, people, pastors and theologians and, and writers and, and whatnot who were greatly, um, encouraged by Dr. Smith's book. I need to warn you, it, it is not a, a simple, easy to read devotional book it is a very challenging book but i i absolutely loved this book and so i want to commend that to your attention while we're on the subject of books i'm curious for a a show of hands how many of you are john grisham fans that's probably not the first thing you would hear on christmas right about keep your hands up i just want to get an eye of several of you that's interesting if you're not you probably should be um my best friend encouraged me actually for years and years and years you got to read john grisham you got to read john grisham and my response and dream would remember this i used to say over and over again i don't have time for Fiction. I don't have time for it. There's too much good theology. There's too many good Christian books to read. And so I would continually go back to my friend Dave and say, I don't have time for fiction. And then I made my fatal mistake. I read one John Grisham book. I was finished. I was finished. I would like to tell you that I received a personal email from John Grisham. That would sound pretty cool. I actually did get an email from John Grisham. But if you are a Grisham reader, you are likely on his mailing list. And so my suspicion is that uh, thousands and thousands of people all around the world received this email. 
It reads as follows. Dear reader, the holidays are once again upon us. The oddly named Black Friday has come and gone. Cyber Week followed on its heels and we flocked to our devices and we bought stuff online. Next on deck, Super Saturday. Gifts get wrapped, decorations go up, office parties are thrown, and as the days grow ever shorter, the frenzy swells. Then we turn the corner and the days begin to lengthen. Thank goodness. There is a flurry of gift giving and feasting. Before you can ask, do you mind if I return this? The year comes to a close. A new year begins and then it's back to work. And this is the section I want you to pay close attention to. In the midst of all this manic activity, it can be too easy to lose track of what really matters. Your health, friends, and loved ones, simple pleasures, delicious food, a warm blanket, and most notably, the delights of a good book. Wishing you good cheer and all the blessings of the season, John Grisham. I want you to think about a few things that Mr. Grisham says. He makes reference to things that are very, very important to me, and I'm sure they're very important to you as well. Health, friends, loved ones, simple pleasures like a shot of espresso. Or a latte, put your seatbelt on, peppered with cayenne, dark chocolate. Yeah, okay, you're with me. A warm blanket, and most notably, the delights of a good book. These are things that are important to many of us, if not most of us. But as I read Grisham's short note, I was struck I was struck by this thought that began to bug me. And as I usually do, when something bugs me, I want it to bug you as well. I want the the tormented thoughts that plague my mind to, to plague your mind as well. And here is my thought. Is it possible that we get so enamored with the good things in life that we miss the great things in life. I believe this is precisely what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with, with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant By an offer of a holiday at the sea. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. Here is this child having the time of her life. Making mud pies. When all along there is an offer. There is an offer waiting in the wings. An offer as Lewis says, of a holiday at the sea. But no, we are far too easily pleased. And so this morning, I want you to see where that infinite joy resides that Lewis speaks of. 
When you recognize the source of infinite joy, you can enjoy the good things in your life. But the good things in your life will soon begin to revolve around the great things in life. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to to two passages. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning as we celebrate Christmas together. I want you to uh, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 1 to begin with. And then hold your finger in Matthew chapter 1. And also be ready to look at Hebrews chapter 1. And so two passages, Matthew chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to have you stand to your feet and we're going to read both these passages in rapid succession. First of all, Matthew chapter 1, as you stand together with me as we read the word of God together. Beginning in verse 18, Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph became a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. Or Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And of course, in this passage, we learn where the source of infinite joy resides. It is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look over at Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're, we're grateful to be here in this place. We're grateful to, to celebrate the birth of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that you developed this plan in eternity past, whereby you would send your one and only son to be born in the manger. To be born for a purpose so that he would live a a life that we could never live as sinners and that he would die a death that we all deserve to die. That we would bear the weight of God's wrath, but instead the Lord Jesus bore the wrath for everyone who would ever believe. And so today as we celebrate Christmas, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. We thank you for the freedom that is ours in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is The Supremacy of the Son. Before the service began, I was visiting with my friends, and my one friend said this. He said, 
my suspicion is that you're going to step outside of Romans and preach a Christmas message. And I said, indeed I am. But it's not necessarily a Christmas passage. The passage that we will zero in on is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, a, a section of Scripture that is not normally conceived as a Christmas text. But if you begin to think about how God's Word unfolds, aren't they all Christmas texts? From Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. You see, the, the Bible that we hold in our hands is history. Is it not? It is His story. It's history. We see the, the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in each book of sacred scripture. And so we focus in on the supremacy of the Son. One of the lessons that we find in the book of Hebrews, and it's an amazing lesson, it's the lesson that Jesus Christ is superior to everything and everyone. Amen to that? Nothing beats the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we are celebrating the birth of Jesus and, and nothing comes close to comparing with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see five reasons this morning why Jesus Christ is superior to everyone and everything. Now, as I look out on this sea of faces, some of you I do not know. And I'm so glad that we have really a, a, a large handful of guests this morning. And so knowing nothing about your background, I don't know if you know a little bit about Jesus or uh, quite a bit about Jesus. Or if you're a, a, a New Testament scholar or an Old Testament scholar, we're all in a different set of circumstances here at Christ Fellowship. So whether you're a guest or an attender or a member or a longtime member, we all have a certain set of knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for years. You are true stalwarts of the Christian faith. And so wherever you are this morning, whether it's just a, a cursory knowledge of Jesus or you've been walking with Jesus most of your adult life, my hope is that each one of you would walk away from church this morning with a better understanding of who Jesus is and why we celebrate the birth at this Christmas season. But there's a problem, and I think it's a big problem. Uh, yesterday, as Doreen and I were driving around in the, in the evening, uh, we saw a few manger scenes, what we know as nativity scenes. And the problem is this, much as I like the nativity scene, I think we have a problem, especially in America during Christmas time. We see the nativity scene, we, we hear a song about Jesus, we sing a song about Jesus, and we think these little teeny tiny thoughts that go something like this, oh, isn't that cute? Oh, Jesus is so precious, isn't he? It's just Christmas is neat. Lights and bells and whistles and presents and family come together. And we zero in our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the problem that we have, even in the church, is we think little tiny thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think little thoughts about Jesus, it affects us in some pr profound ways. If we think little thoughts about Jesus, we end up refusing to stand in awe of Jesus. I'll illustrate it like this. 
You have all seen a photograph, whether it's online or in a book or otherwise, of the Grand Canyon. And if you've seen a photograph of the Grand Canyon, like me, you likely think a thought that goes something like this. Wow, that's, that's, that's great. Like that, that, that's beautiful. That's really exciting. You might even think theologically about the Grand Canyon and say, wow, God created the Grand Canyon. I'm impressed. But here's what happens. If you get on a plane and you fly to the Grand Canyon and you get out of that plane and you make your way to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you gaze into that cavernous, massive piece of land that God created, it's no longer neat. It leaves you breathless. It takes your mind away. It's no longer neat. It is awesome. It is amazing. And it takes your breath away. I believe that when we consider the person and the work and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not just neat. He's not a little Jesus. He is a massive Jesus. He is a glorious Jesus. He is a majestic Jesus. And like standing at the edge of Grand Canyon, the Lord Jesus Christ should take our breaths away. And so look with me now at the first of five reasons why Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. Verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, that is in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The first reason that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything is that he is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. The author of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament prophets delivered a message. And it was a mighty message. It was a message from God. Although, as we know now, as, as people who live in this, this age of the new covenant, we know that the message was not complete yet. However, as the New Testament begins to unfold, we find that God's final revelation is found in the babe in the manger. God's ultimate revelation is found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look quickly at two keys with me. First of all, realize that when the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as an heir, H-E-I-R, an heir receives, by definition, the property of another. And so Jesus receives everything that is rightly owned by the Father. Jesus, then, is the appointed heir. He's the appointed heir. And so God the Father determined in eternity past that the Son, the second member of the Godhead, would be the heir of all things. And I want you to see now that this divine appointment was not an afterthought with God. In fact... You realize, I think, that nothing is an afterthought with God. There is no plan B for God. There are some schools of theology, and some of you kind of have the inside track on this. And I even know who you are. Uh, You were raised, as I was, with a school of theology called dispensational theology, where essentially the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was the backup plan. It was plan B. 
And I've come to this conclusion and this conviction, and it's a dogmatic conviction. The cross was not a backup plan. The cross was foreordained when, in eternity past, God had it planned from all eternity. It is rooted before the foundation of the world and part of the eternal decree of God. So, hold in your Bibles uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and turn back to the book of Psalms, if you would, just for a moment. Because I think it would be very important for you to, to look at this passage and to, to see it, to wrestle with it. Psalm chapter 2. Verses 6 to, six to 8. Psalm 2, 6 to 8. The psalmist says this. As for me, and we need to think like good Trinitarians, we believe in one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord That is, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. See the two-person distinction here. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Right out of the get-go, we see in Psalm 2 that Jesus is the heir of all things. Psalm 89.27 says, And I will make him the firstborn. We see that in Colossians chapter 1. Which means that Jesus is supreme above all. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Second, I want you to see that since Jesus is the heir of all things, there is a massive implication here. And the massive implication is that since he is the heir of all things, he has a Authority over everything and over everyone. We all know the Great Commission. Most of us could, could, could spout out the Great Commission by memory. But there's something about the Great Commission that gets overlooked and even, dare I say, overshadowed. And it's found in Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it quickly. Where Jesus says to his disciples, before he says, as you were going... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. What a promise. Amen? But preceding that charge to not just the disciples, but to every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to be making disciples. Not just the mandate that I have. Not just the mandate that every missionary has. But the mandate that every Christian has to make disciples. Listen to the context. What precedes that great commission. Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth to me. How much authority does Jesus have? He has it all. Jesus Christ. Think now. The babe in the manger. The one who we conceive of as so cute. And indeed he was. But he's so much more than cute. He has authority over all peoples and over all things. Now, there is a philosophy. My uncle used to refer to philosophy as fool-osophy. Fool-osophy. There is a fool-osophy that locks horns with the sovereignty of the Son. In fact, as I have studied philosophy over the years, over the last 25-plus years, I have discovered that 
many, if not most, philosophies lock horns with the biblical reality of the sovereignty of the Son. But this philosophy is one that is found in many, many self-help books. It's found in poetry. It's found in biographies. It's a reoccurring theme in political speeches and, and addresses in high school graduations and college graduations. It's a philosophy that feeds and fuels our pride. It is a philosophy that, that feeds and fuels our desire to be self-sufficient and selfish people. In short, it pleases our flesh. The philosophy is humanism. And there is a writer born in England by the name of William Ernest Henley. And he wrote a poem that many of you have heard. And you may have even been impressed initially at the words of this poem. You may have heard it at a high school or a college graduation. It's, it's very popular. The title of the poem is Invictus. And the writer says this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And I want you to hear the last few lines and see the the dire humanism that emerges from this poem. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Many Americans believe those words. We believe that we are self-made. We are self-taught. We are the captains of our soul. We create our own destinies. And the tragic thing is this. There are preachers who proclaim this false gospel. If you can conceive of it, if you can believe it, you give it to God and he gives it to you. It's called the health and wealth gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel. I am the captain of my soul. May I encourage you this morning when you feel compelled to call the shots. That is shorthand for when you feel compelled to stand in the place of God. Remember that there is one who stands supreme over everyone and everything. He is the only one who is in control of the universe. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he truly is the Lord and master of human existence. You also remember that if you are a Christian, you are called God's child. And if you are called God's child, you, listen to this, you are joint heirs with Jesus. You are seated in the heavenlies with the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. We'll get there someday. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm going to stop right there. Just soak that in. The spirit bears witness that, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus Christ, the son, the second member of the Godhead, is the heir of all things. There's a second reason that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. It's also found in verse 3. We see that the son is the creator of all things. Verse, verse 3. He is the, or verse 2 rather. Through whom he created the world. Once again, two keys to commend your attention. That if Jesus Christ was involved, if Jesus Christ created the cosmos, that he must exist from all eternity. Jesus cannot be a creature. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the, was the word. And the word was with God. That preposition as I've shared before means face to face. The word, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, is face to face with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ is God. And so he must be the being. He must be the Savior who is self-existent. In John chapter 8, verse 58, and I remember the first time I began to wrestle with this, it blew my Mind, John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus answers the religious leaders. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That may not strike you as significant, but the words I am in the Greek are written in the present tense, which means this, and his hearers knew it. It means this, I have always existed. I exist today. And I will exist unto all eternity. One of my favorite questions for children and for, for parents and children to wrestle with is, especially at Christmas time, how old is Jesus? And the smart kids always say about 2019, give or take. What's the answer? Jesus is infinite. Jesus is eternal. Jesus Christ doesn't have a beginning. He has existed from all eternity. He is the creator of all things. It was the late R.C. Sproul who said that he alone can create beings because he alone has the power of being. St. Augustine said God created the world out of nothing but the sheer power of his voice. Yet we have this idea that the, the babe in the manger is cute. Jesus has the sheer power. He creates by the sheer power of his voice. Now in Hebrews chapter 1. The universe is more than just. What we conceive of as the planets and the stars. It includes energy. And time. And space. And matter. Colossians 1.16 says that. For by him Jesus. All things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions. Or rulers or authorities. John chapter 1 verse 3. Says all things were made through him. And without him. Was not anything made that was made. I remember when our daughter Abby. Was about six years old. That verse was read. And I, I can just. I can just see it like it was yesterday. She says. I don't get it. I don't get it. Read it again. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Do you get it now? Nope. Go talk to your mother. 
<laughs> don't you love childlike faith? <laughs> I don't get it. But what the verse helps us to understand is that Jesus is infinite. Jesus is eternal. And if Jesus doesn't exist, nothing exists. Nothing exists. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by God so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Think about Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God, you do know there's no uh, uh, apologetic for God in scripture. The authors don't have to make this case for God. God makes the case on his own. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Augustine says God created the world by, out of nothing. He said ex nihilo by the sheer power of his voice. There's a second thing. Jesus created all things for a purpose. You see, Jesus doesn't just create willy-nilly for fun. He doesn't just create things for kicks. He does it for a purpose. He does it for his glory. That's what Isaiah 43 verse 7 says. So one of the things that, that many people wrestle with is, what is my purpose? What is my place in this world? Some of you, along with me, may have your qualms and your quarrels with Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. But the one thing that Dr. Warren did in that book is he tapped in to a question that every person is wrestling with. What is my purpose? And the answer is simple and profound. My purpose is to glorify the great God of the universe. And I know no human author who can explain that better than Jonathan Edwards. Edwards says this, the disposition, inclination, or affection of God chiefly consists in regard to himself, infinitely above his regard to all other things. The most important thing in the universe to God is God, right? Many of you know the the question number one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Here's a bigger question, a more majestic question. What is the chief end of God? Answer, the chief end of God is to glorify himself forever. To enjoy himself and to to glorify himself forever forever and here's what blows my mind if god if the triune god refuses to glorify himself forever then he becomes an idol worshiper by virtue of the fact that he is god he must enjoy himself and glorify himself forever edwards continues What God says in his word naturally leads us to suppose that the way in which he makes himself his end in his work or his works, which he does for his own sake, is in making his glory his end. And then these are the words that just just crush me, but also encourage me. God's glory is the end of creation. What's the most important thing in the universe to God? It's the glory of God. And so when you are inclined to embrace the, the lie that has permeated, not just American culture, but the world, that the universe arose by chance, 
i.e. evolutionary theory, remember this biblical maxim, the son of God is the creator of the universe. A personal creator then implies personal responsibility. I remember someone said something like this. Do you wonder why high school students are acting like apes? Because they are told they came from the apes. It's no wonder our students are acting like monkeys. The personal creator then implies personal responsibility, thus a moral code. By the way, not all the high school students do not act like monkeys, especially this row. Nice work. God has revealed his moral framework. He has revealed his ethical guidelines, and they're set in stone in sacred scripture. And so we see that the son is the heir of all things. He's the the creator of all things. But we go further by looking in Hebrews chapter 1. We see that the son is the sustainer of all things. He not only created it all, he sustains it all. Verse 2, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I remember the first time that verse gripped me. It just struck me with a mighty force that Jesus created it and Jesus sustains it. And then I turned to A.W. Pink in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. And Pink says this, the whole universe hangs on his arm. By the way, does God have an arm? We, we read in the scriptures and you'll, you'll hear a skeptic say, wait a minute, I thought you said God was spirit. The word of God says he has an arm. We see that he has eyes. We see that he has a head. We see in Isaiah that he has a torso or he has legs or he has ears. Calvin said it best. He said that God talks in baby talk. He talks in baby talk. So creatures like you and I who are slower to understand that we will get it. And so that's why we, we hear this language of, of body parts like an arm. But Pink continues, his unsearchable wisdom and boundless power are manifested in governing and directing the complicated movements of animate and inanimate, rational and irrational beings to the attainment of his own great and holy purposes. And then Pink says, and he does this by the word of his power. If you look at Hebrews 1, 3, the little word sustains, the English word sustains comes from a Greek term that means to uphold, to keep from falling. That's what Jesus does. One commentator says, and I just love this so much, he is the principle of cohesion in the universe. What happens if Jesus falls asleep? This pulpit collapses. The planets begin to collide with one another. The breath that I'm breathing disintegrates. I disintegrate. Jesus is the principle of cohesion in the universe. Why? He sustains all things by the word of his power. And because Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, we can say that we live in an ordered universe instead of a chaotic one. I swear last week I thought we lived in a chaotic country when I saw what happened on the floor of the House of Representatives. And that's not a political statement. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. But we do not live in a chaotic country because Jesus is in control. 
We don't live in a chaotic universe or world because Jesus is in control. And I know no one that can articulate this in a more profound way in terms of a human author than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I I should lay my cards on the table of everything I've ever read by Spurgeon. This is my number one Spurgeon quote. And so you will hear it often. He says this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam, that does not move an atom more or less than God wishes, that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of the aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence, the fall of leaves from a popular is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Why could Spurgeon say that? Because the God who creates is also the God who sustains. He ordains everything that comes to pass. Now, if I am honest, and I think many of you would agree that at Christmas time, This is a season that tugs on our emotions. Some of us have loved ones that are no longer with us. Some of us will see the manger scene or we'll see an arrangement of lights or we'll see a tree or we'll go to a restaurant or we'll sit around the tree with our family and friends and it'll trigger something in our minds and it makes you sad. I'm just so I'm not sad by myself. Can any of you relate to what I'm talking about? It's like Christmas triggers those kinds of emotions. And so may I encourage you that when the world feels like it is collapsing and falling apart at the seams, especially as we celebrate during this season, remember that Jesus Christ, he's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And The universe that is sustained by the living God should give us great hope and great comfort. Well, there's a fourth reason that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. It's also found in verse 3. And that is that the Son is God in the flesh. We've already seen this in a very basic way. But I want you to see also in verse 3. He is the radiance. That is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the the radiance of the glory of God. That phrase radiance can be translated as sending out rays of light. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. A phrase that means an exact expression of any person. A marked likeness one new testament scholar by the name of ff bruce says that what god essentially is is manifest in christ to see christ is to see what the father is like if if we were to go around and ask individually have you ever wondered what god is like i I think a lot of children ask that question and it's a really good question what is god like I hope that adults are asking that question as well. What is he like? And the answer is, if you want to know what God's like, just look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, just look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can spread a passion for the supremacy of God as we too radiate the glory 
of God in our lives as Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Look at the fifth reason here, also found in verse 3. The fifth reason that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything, namely that the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Redeemer. He's the Redeemer. He's our blessed hope. And the scriptures offer this hope to sinners that Jesus died to redeem people from their sins. As I thought about this message, and I thought about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I thought about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I remember messages that I have preached over the years, and I remember messages I have listened to over the years, and I'm convinced that many messages, and they're not bad, they're good, but many messages focus in on Jesus' birth, Jesus' incarnation, those are all good and right. But ultimately, what does Jesus come to do? He, he is born so that he might die for the sins of his people. When Jesus died on the cross, he made purification for our sins. And after he made purification for our sins, he sat down, as verse 3 says, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did Jesus sit? What is the significance? He sits down because his work is complete. Hebrews 10:12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One thing that you will find interesting is that there were no seats. There were no stools in the Old Testament tabernacle. Why? The priests were charged with making continual sacrifices for sins, all of which pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. And after Jesus makes purification for sins, his task is complete for all time and all eternity. And so listen, when you, during this Christmas season, when you have days when you're feeling inadequate or you feel guilty, remember that Jesus redeemed you and then he sat down. The work is finished. The work is complete. There is absolutely nothing that you can do to contribute or to add to the salvation that Jesus purchased for you. Now we can enter into his presence boldly to receive grace and mercy and help in time of need. As I said when we began, I'm convinced that many Christians all around the world, but especially in the States, we think little thoughts about jesus and i believe that our view of jesus christ must be subjected to the scripture and when we subject our thoughts about jesus to the scripture guess what happens explodes our view of jesus explodes our view of jesus is transformed and when our view of jesus is transformed you and i are transformed and so this morning i want you to see once again where infinite joy resides it resides right here it resides in the manger it resides in the person of the lord jesus christ and the key this morning is this when you recognize the source of infinite joy and you delight in the source of infinite joy you can truly enjoy the good things in life and so you enjoy that dark chocolate to the glory of of God. You enjoy that shot of espresso to the glory of God. You enjoy that walk with your spouse to the glory of God. I remember I read an article by John Piper many, many years ago, and it was just like a 
It was like illumination to me. It was like a revelation. And the article spoke of drinking orange juice to the glory of God. I remember when I read the title of the article, I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me. Drinking orange juice to the glory of God? And these were the days when my family was in Legrand, and, and I had read this article and began to share it with anyone I could. And now there are people still to this day, they'll send me an email, they'll send me a text, they'll send me a letter, and they'll talk about today I drank some orange juice to the glory of God. I hit a baseball to the glory of God. I drove across the country to the glory of God. I read a book to the glory of God. I gave a gift to the glory of God. You see how this influences our lives? Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God, including drinking a goofy glass of orange juice. We do it all to the glory of God. Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. He is the heir of all things, the creator and sustainer of the universe, God incarnate, and he is the redeemer. As we close, may I ask you and challenge you with this question. Where do you stand with Emmanuel? Emmanuel simply means God with us. And we learn this in the scriptures. And I must say that each one of these sentences could be a standalone sermon. We learn that Emmanuel came to redeem us. That he came so that we might be adopted sons and daughters. He came to rescue us from the slavery of sin. He came so that we might receive an inheritance. That we might be heirs with Christ. He came so that we might receive eternal life. He came so that we might have peace with God. He came to reconcile us to a holy God. He came to cool down the white hot wrath of God. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And he came to wipe out our sin. Let me restate that. He came to obliterate our sin. Do you know this Savior? Have you come face to face with Yeshua, with God with us, with Emmanuel, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you celebrate this Christmas season, may you remember that the Son of God, that Jesus Christ, the, the babe in the manger, is superior to everyone. He is superior to everything. May you find your delight in him as we move into 2020. And as you behold the Savior, as you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look at the wonder that is the Lord Jesus Christ, may you be filled with awe. He will no longer be neat. He will be the awesome God of the universe. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this chance to to worship in spirit and in truth. We're grateful for these few verses in Hebrews chapter 1 that point to the supremacy of your son, the one who is superior over everyone and everything. But I pray that 2020 would be the year when when many people at Christ Fellowship would would make a, a bold resolution to put the Lord Jesus Christ first for the remainder of their days. Some of us have many years to live. Some of us have a few to live. Wherever we stand before you, may 2020, may 2020 be the year when the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted in individual lives, when he continues to be exalted here at this church. We thank you for what's taking place in the life of Christ Fellowship. 
We are so eager to, to move forward by your grace and for your glory. May we remember those words in 1 Corinthians 10 that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.